Hi, I'm Lauren and I'll be reading from John chapter 2, verse 13 to 25. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found people selling cattle, sheep and doves and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, Get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. His disciples remembered that it is written, Zeal for your house will consume me. The Jews then responded to him, What sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. They replied, It has taken 46 years to build this temple and you are going to raise it up in three days? But the temple he had spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scripture and that word that Jesus had spoken. And the second reading from Hebrews 8, starting uh, at verse 1. Now the main point of what we are saying is this. We do have such a high priest who sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven and who serves in the sanctuary, the true tabernacle set up by the Lord, not by a mere human being. Every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices, and so it was necessary for this one also to have something to offer. If he were on earth, he would not be a priest, for there are already priests who offer the gifts prescribed by the law. They serve at a sanctuary that is a copy and shadow of what is in heaven. This is why Moses was warned when he was about to build the tabernacle. See to it that you make everything according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. But in fact, the ministry Jesus has received is as superior to theirs as the covenant of which he is mediator is superior to the old one. Since the new covenant is established on better promises. For if there had been nothing wrong with that first covenant, no place would have been sought for another. But God found fault with the people and said, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt, because they did not remain faithful to my covenant, and I turned away from them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will establish with the people of Israel. After that time, declares the Lord, I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbour or say to one another, know the Lord, because they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, for I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. By calling this covenant new, he's made the first one obsolete and what is obsolete and outdated will soon disappear. Amen. Father, speak to us now by your Holy Spirit. Reveal to us now what is true, even if invisible. Give us hope, the hope that comes through Jesus Christ, 
and give us courage to follow him. We pray this in his name. Amen. A number of weeks ago, I introduced you to my friend who had been the Qantas chief marketing officer. He was Qantas's chief salesman. He'd been exploring faith here at Churchill, and he said to me, with respect to sermons, he was talking about comms, as you expect he would, and he said to me, with respect to sermons, he said, there can never be two layers of relevance. Just one, he said, something you'd expect from Qantas's marketing man. He said to me, honestly, if I have to think about it, it isn't useful to me. What does Qantas say? The leg room is bigger. The food is better. The queues are shorter. The flights are on time. Is that true? I still call Australia home. Very simple, one layer of relevance. But the book of Hebrews that we've been studying throughout this year is for us at least two layers of relevance, maybe three, maybe four. And yet here we are sitting in our seats with all our complexities, wanting some clues about how to live life, wanting whatever it is that you want. But then here we are also having to wade through not just the text, which is complex in itself, but the original context of the book of Hebrews. There's your second layer, which is, of course, as we've been learning, Jewish believers in Jesus Christ staring down persecution, exclusion. Who wants that? Imprisonments, the confiscation of property, Lord spare us, and perhaps even the shedding of their blood, chapter 12, verse 4. And so some of them had become wobbly. Now we have to wade through not only the original context, but also, it turns out, the whole older Jewish sacrificial system, that is, temples and high priests and bulls and goats. Dude, where's my legroom? Make it simpler. My Qantas CMO did not last long at church. It would seem that you have to want to learn. You have to want to know. Remember, as we often say at Churchill, treasure is rarely found at the mouth of a cave. It must be dug for. I wonder if you felt that last week, trying to get how Jesus is a high priest in the order of Melchizedek through resurrection and indestructible life. Download that sermon from last week, even if to listen to a second time. You can get that on the Church Hill links, the podcasts, or you could go to the Connect to Us page and ask for that sermon. Well, some good news from the author, no less. He sums up the point so far and the relevance in chapter 8, verses 1 and 2, just read to us by Andrew. And it goes like this. Thankfully, now, the main point of what we are saying is this. Here's the heart of it, if you struggle. Here's the guts. We do have such a high priest in the order of Melchizedek. We do have such a high priest who sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven and who serves in the sanctuary, the true tabernacle set up by the Lord and not by a mere human being. See, that's who we have. Such a high priest. That's who we have. The one who's on our side. 
He is our high priest, so you don't need one here on earth, but one who has allowed us to approach a holy God without being wiped out for our sin. And this one, we find out, is victorious. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven, not here. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven, next to his father. Jesus, we're told, currently serves in what he calls the sanctuary. And that's not the bit up the front of church here. And it's not even the bit in front of the temple in Jerusalem. The writer goes on and calls it the true tabernacle or tent set up by God, the one God made, and not by a mere human being, not by project managers and construction and bricks and mortar. So to be clear, that's not the second temple in Jerusalem which went down to the Romans in 70 AD. Only a bit of it left now that you can visit. That's right here. I'll show, I'll show it to you. That's the Wailing Wall and the Temple in Jerusalem. You can go, hands up who's seen the Wailing Wall. Bless you. One day for me. It's not even that, nor even uh, the first temple, Solomon's Temple, which went down to the Babylonians in 587 BC. Both those temples now lie in ruins. It's not even the tent they construct, Moses constructed in the wilderness according to the plans of God thousands of years before this. There's a third layer of relevance. Now, all of those made by human beings. You can fly to one of those destinations from Sydney with your Qantas legroom and your Qantas food. And you can see those ruins or where they might have been. No, this true tabernacle is the one where Christ, risen from the dead, currently is in the abode of God, in heaven. That hope is an anchor that has entered the sanctuary, we found out three weeks ago. And that's good news for you. And the writer of Hebrews will spend some chapters arguing why it's good news for you and worth not losing even if you go wobbly, especially if you go wobbly. Which brings me to another problem we might have. Not only are we wading through two or three layers of relevance, but everything we're being offered here is invisible, like love, like the Holy Spirit. Do you get that? Do you feel it? You can see it there. Main point is this. We, don't have a, we do have a high priest who sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. Not here where you could see him or visit him. The writer here is talking about a heavenly space or tent, the place where God dwells. And that's not easy for a bunch of you. You are tactile people. You want to see with your own eyes. You want to confirm it. But it turns out that the life in Christ is by faith, not by sight. By faith, not by see, hear, taste, touch, smell. I watched the Hillsong show, The Kingdom, uh, I think it's on SBS On Demand, and the journalist had been a believer and then now no longer a believer, and he articulates at the end, very sadly, I think, that his faith was dashed because he didn't see it, he couldn't feel it. He said as he was standing there in church, he thought either A, everyone is faking it, or B, God is withholding something from him. And yet everything you want in the gospel is invisible, forgiveness of sins, hope as an anchor for your soul, 
a son who is interceding for us to the Father, a Father who has spoken to us by the Son, chapter 1, but not always in audible words. Do you feel the problem? I do. Have my whole life. And I bet you have people who feel it too, the people you love. Where's the visible pay dirt? Where's the here and now? And what's more, you're being asked to stake your life on this. The stakes couldn't be higher on these invisible truths. Remember the quote I gave you a few weeks ago from Dietrich Bonhoeffer? He learned the hard way. When Christ calls a woman, he bids her come and die. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. That's what the writer of Hebrews is saying, that you have to stake your life on the gospel. You can see how the original recipients of the letter might have thought, yeah, but what about the here and now? Yeah, but I don't want the pain. Yeah, I want proof. So you're going to have to have a good reason to stay Christian. It's going to hurt. Will you do it? Even if wobbly, waiting for invisible benefits, even now. Later, the writer will say, don't shrink back, don't give up. At a point of sort of a climactic point in the letter, the writer says this in chapter 10, verse 39, we do not belong to those who shrink back and are destroyed, but those who have faith and are saved. Now, faith is confidence in what we hope for, but don't yet have, and assurance about what we do not see. There it is. This is what the ancients were commended for. So how are we going to do this? Stay Christian when it's all invisible and not go wobbly. With your Bibles open to page 971 and your outline perhaps, uh, well, there's no outline in here, it's on the screen. You'll find out that G the writer is saying that Jesus is A, better, and B, newer. Pretty simple. Jesus is better, 8 verses 3 to 6, and newer, 8 verses 6 through 12. So my first point, point, Jesus is better than the shadow or the copy. No, we're not talking about the fictional comic book character, the shadow. We're talking about the Jewish sacrificial system. The writer calls that whole system going for thousands of years, um, known not so much to Jews today, not, not for thousands of years, but the Jews of old. The writer here calls that whole system a shadow or a copy, a thing that mirrors something substantial above. Now you see the irony straight away. The thing on earth that you could have visited is seen as the shadow, but the place in heaven that you can't see is the substance. That's irony, worth knowing. Here is a photocopy of my home, it's the rectory. This is not the same thing as reality. I can't sleep on this. The reality, I assure you, is better than the copy. In verses 3 through 6, the writer says that Jesus is better than the old system, so don't go back. First, he tells you what those high priests had to do. Verse 3, they had to offer both gifts and sacrifices, bulls and goats. And because Jesus is a high priest, not in the order of Levi, but Melchizedek, the indestructible life, not dying, but, verse 3, it was necessary for this one, Jesus, also to have something to offer. What did he offer? More bulls and goats, more blood, 
No. He offers, you know, he offers himself. If you've got a Bible open, flick back to 7 verse 27. Unlike the other high priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. No, he sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered, you see it there? He offered himself. And there it is, the gift. He is the gift. He offered up his own life. Self-donation is what the ancients called it, and he is better. The old sanctuary consisted of a system of, of barriers between the worshipper and God, barriers that Jesus has opened. He is the new and better high priest. Those barriers have been broken down. He is better than the shadow. Remember what Rob said last week, that these sacrifices were being offered at the time of writing. When the writer of Hebrews was writing it, the sacrifice was being offered. They're not being offered now, not since the destruction of the temple in 70 AD, and they went Torah, 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 not sacrifices. But in verse 4, if Jesus were on earth, he isn't, but if he was, he would not be a priest, for there are already priests who offer the bulls and goats prescribed by the law. They already exist. They're already doing their bulls and goats thing. That is the copy. But they're not the substance. Verse 7, they serve at a sanctuary that is a copy and a shadow of what is in heaven. And here's the nub. The thing they saw on earth, a copy of what's in heaven. That's the idea. I don't know how this works, but if you read Exodus 25, Moses is told in profound detail. All you eight types who like detail, go read Exodus 25. It involves the ark, a bunch of other things, the detail. Like God doesn't go, oh, well, we'll, you know, we'll give you a 50% and you can be creative with the other 50. Every, it tells Moses everything that the tabernacle or the tent should look like. That's in verse 5. This is why Moses was warned when he was about to build the tabernacle, quote, Exodus 25, see to it that you make everything according to the pattern shown to you on Mount Sinai. See, God was communicating that there was something else something better than the tabernacle, something ultimate, something unseen, something higher, something that you could only get a glimpse of on earth. Mere human hands could only show you a copy. So it's unseen. The old copy was previously seen. You made pilgrimages. And when you got there, you smelled the blood of bulls and goats like a barbecue. It was inadequate. We'll see that as the weeks go on. But it was tactile. I mean, you're going to find out it didn't actually allow for the forgiveness of sins. It didn't cleanse anyone. But it was pretty powerful to be present there. But here you are. The gospel offers us something better than a copy. copy. Chapter 8 is broken into two parts, better, verses 1 through 6, and newer, verses 6 through 13. You see what I did there? Got a little Venn diagram I could have put up for you. Verse 6 is the key linking the two ideas of better and newer. Verse 6, but in fact, the ministry Jesus has received is as superior to theirs as the covenant of which he is the mediator is superior to the old one since the new covenant is established on better promises, something that works. And so we move from a better ministry, 
point number one, to a newer covenant. Jesus is newer than the old covenant. A covenant is an agreement that exists between two parties. In the ancient world, two powers would make covenants that would bind themselves to various behaviours with consequences for those who broke it, not unlike a marriage. That Israel dared to claim that God had made a covenant, especially with them, the one true God, not just, I mean, any God, but the one true God, the ground of all being, the one above it all, had made a covenant with them was itself new and astounding. Verse 6 again, but in fact, the ministry Jesus has received is as superior to theirs as the covenant of which he is the mediator is superior to the old one since the new covenant is established on better promises. And it's because of the new covenant that the old one is a mere shadow. Verses 7 through 12 are basically a quote from Jeremiah 31. I thought about having Jeremiah 31 as the second reading as opposed to John 2, but then I thought, wow, we just read the same passage twice. But they're written hundreds of years apart, and they are glorious. Jeremiah 31, glorious. These are the better promises. Jeremiah 31, hundreds of years before Jesus, picks up on something that's there in the whole Old Testament, that the Old Covenant had a problem that there was something wrong in the operating system of the Old Covenant. The Old Covenant was written on stone. It was external. You could look at it. You could look at the words on the stone kept in the ark. You could try to keep it. You had to be what they call observant. And yet embedded in the Old Covenant was an idea that God wants your heart, not just mere observance because there's a problem in the operating system, and the problem is in you and me, and it's called sin. So people tried to keep the covenant, but couldn't. They were, in the words of the old covenant, stiff-necked, or heart of heart. An example of this, in Deuteronomy, they were told to get their boys circumcised, external, go do it, but even in Deuteronomy, they're told to circumcise their hearts, something we learned through Galatians when we worked through that book last year. And so God did what the Torah, the law, could never do. God won their hearts. Verse 7, if there'd been nothing wrong with that first covenant, no place would have been sought for another. But there is another place. Verse 8, God found fault with the people and said, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. So embedded In the old method of God was a new one. The old covenant leaned forward to a new one, and indeed it was foretold here and elsewhere. Now, there's no mistake. It is, in fact, the original plan of God to deal with the problem. Verse 9, this new covenant will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand and led them out of Egypt, like Moses. It won't be like the old covenant because, problem, they did not remain faithful to my covenant, and I turned away from them, declares the Lord. The old one didn't work. And so I'm going to make it work by going inside, into hearts. I'm going to change the whole operating system. Verse 10, this is the new agreement 
that I will establish with the, ha- the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord, and eventually you and me too, if you're not an Israelite. That's again Galatians last year. Here's the new agreement. I will put my law on their minds and I'll write them on their hearts. The prophet Ezekiel spoke about the same thing when God said through him, I will give them a new heart and a new spirit. In the new covenant, you get something brand new. God in you. Christ in you. The hope of glory. Verse 10, I will be their God and they will be my people. The dwelling of God amongst them, the very thing hoped for. And it won't be external where someone will assume the role of teacher. They will all be taught directly by God. Verse 11, no longer will they teach their neighbours or say to one another, know the Lord, like agitating for change. The reason why they won't need to agitate for it is because they'll all know me. From the least of them, to the greatest, the slave, the king. And the reason is because I will forgive their wickedness. I'll solve the problem. I'll forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. Who doesn't want this? Amen? Who doesn't want this? The forgiveness of sins. God looking at you and he knows, he, he sees, it's not as if he doesn't see it, but he says, I choose not to remember it. I put them behind me. We're going to find out that the way God put them behind him or cast the sin as far as east is from the west, cleansing an unholy people, making them holy. We're going to find out the way he did that is by Christ's death on the cross and his ascension to the Father where he intercedes for us as a high priest. And there it is. Amen? There it is. You You'll know God on the inside. For God will forget your sins eternally. You will stand before a holy God forgiven with a new mind, a new heart, a new spirit, ransomed, healed, restored, forgiven. You like that old hymn? Jesus knew that something new was coming. Early on in John's Gospel, he says... There's something that can't be contained in that temple. I promise you. Can't be. Christ is bigger than the temple. And so in John chapter 2, verse 19, Jesus said, you destroy the temple, you tear it down. The one that took 40-something years to build, you tear it down. And I will raise it again in three days. In his resurrection, you meet God. Because, verse 21, the temple he had spoken of was his body. And after he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he said. They believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. So, back to the problem. You're being asked by God to stake your life on something that is unseen. Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, ascended to the Father, all-powerful, all-victorious, but currently unseen. Jesus, a high priest who is permanently able to to intercede so you can permanently know God, but is unseen. Jesus, who entered the sanctuary, not made by human hands, so you now have an anchor for your soul, an anchor that does not weigh you down, but lifts you up. He is an anchor for your soul, but unseen. 
Jesus who provided forgiveness of sins, the cleansing of the body, and hope even if the Romans take your life and yet is unseen. All good news, but none of which is seen. And so the temptation for you and for me will be to go to what is seen. And what in Western society is seen is money, love, sex, power. Why not choose something acceptable in Australian society? Or for the original heroes back then, why not go back to simple Jewish faith? I mean, it's old and we knew it. And the Romans might not like you, but they knew what to do with you if you were Jewish. They didn't know what to do with you if you were a follower of Jesus Christ. So why not stay with the shadow and with the old, which are familiar? And the answer is in verse 13. Verse 13. By calling this covenant new, God made the first one obsolete. And what is obsolete and outdated will soon disappear. Coming up to church this morning, I thought to myself, I wonder if I could call the old covenant a lemon and then I a lemon, right? And then I held myself back thinking, how can I call something so glorious as the old covenant a lemon? And then I got thinking about it and I thought to myself, actually a lemon is where you say this thing that's glorious, for example, a car, this thing that's supposed to do something is a lemon in the sense that there's something embedded into it that's wrong with it. I didn't have that in my notes as I walked up to church. I thought to myself, if I call the old covenant lemon, will Rob Forsyth say something to me afterwards? I love Rob. It wasn't Rob that said something to me afterwards. It was this fellow called Laurie. I'm not sure if Laurie stayed. He's 8.30. He said to me, I'm upset at you, Justin. I said, why is that? He said, you called the old covenant lemon. I said, yeah, yeah, I made up for it. He said, no, no, we're the lemon. I'm like, we're the lemon. We're the problem. Sin's the problem. And God's got the solution. And so it's time to investigate Jesus and his empty grave. I read this quote continuing our cave theme at Churchill. The cave you fear to enter holds the treasure you seek. I say that especially if you don't know God through Jesus Christ. But let me contend to you that everything truly valuable is unseen. Love, joy, grace, hope. These things are unseen. You can see the effects of these things in a transformed life in the same way that you can see the effects of wind in the trees. A point Jesus made about the work of the Spirit in John chapter 3. But I want what is permanent. And what is permanent is, ironically, unseen. And that transforms my life today. As C.S. Lewis said, because we love something else more than this world, we love even this world better than those who know no other. This is why the author will eventually say, to those who love life, follow Jesus, who isn't guided by what is seen, but trusted his Father. At a high point in Hebrews, the writer will, fit, will uh, make some conclusions with these words, and I want to leave these words with you as a conclusion to my message. The writer says, and let us run with perseverance, the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, 
scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners, so that you will not grow weary or wobbly and lose heart. Let me pray. Father, what a beautiful name is Jesus. The one who died for our sins, he gave himself once and for all time. What a beautiful name he is. And yet he currently has the power of an indestructible life, risen from the dead, entered the sanctuary, interceding for us. This is the new covenant and we choose him, a powerful name. We choose him this morning and each morning so that we will not grow wobbly and lose heart. Amen.